We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up and welcome to a history edition of the Bronx Pinstripe Show. Today, a brief history of Yankee Stadium. Governors, generals, colonels, politicians, and baseball officials gathered together solemnly yesterday to dedicate the biggest stadium in baseball. But it was a ball player who did the real dedicating. In the third inning, with two teammates on the baselines, Babe Ruth smashed a savage home run into the right field bleachers. And that was the real baptism of the new Yankee Stadium. That also won the game for the Yankees, and all the ceremony which had gone before was only a trifling preliminary. That was published in the New York Times on April 19th, 1923. And that's how it began. 74,200 people attended the first baseball game at the original Yankee Stadium. Now, I don't know how that was possible considering the capacity was listed at 58,000, but let's just go with it. Whether it was 74,000 or 58,000, it was the largest ever crowd to attend a baseball game, exceeding the previous record of 42,000 for a 1916 World Series game. The team announced that 99,200 people showed up and they had to turn away 25,000 disappointed fans as the gates closed at 3 p.m. According to the New York Evening Telegram, everything smelled of fresh paint, fresh plaster, and fresh grass. Wow, don't you just feel like you were there from that description? Some people say there have been two Yankee stadiums with 2008-2009 being the cutoff, but that's not really true. I consider there to have been three. The original Yankee Stadium, the one built in 1923, the old Yankee Stadium, the renovated version that opened in 1976, and then the new Yankee Stadium, which that explanation is obvious. The reason for this is because the changes made in the 70s were so drastic that it really was a new building. You'll see what I mean later, but I wanted to just set that up so you know what I mean when I say original and when I say old. I kind of have an obsession with the original Yankee Stadium. Anytime I see a picture of it online, I stop to inspect it. I zoom in, looking to see if I can find something I hadn't noticed before. I've even had fantasies about being a time traveler. What would I do? Obviously, in addition to betting on sports like Biff and Back to the Future, I would definitely attend a game at the original Yankee Stadium. I'd walk around the place. I'd see it from the upper deck, from behind home plate. I'd go out to the bleachers. I'd leave the stadium by walking on the field. 
Yeah, you could actually do that. The dimensions were so preposterous. I'd want to see how the outfielders played it and if anyone actually hit a home run over the fence in Death Valley. Some fantasy, huh? Before we go further, I want to give a quick shout out to Jeffrey Demarius, who I had a conversation with on Twitter about the stadium, which kind of triggered this history topic. I covered this a bit in the Subway Series episodes, but after the Yankees left Hilltop Park following the 1912 season, they shared the polo grounds with the Giants. Through 1919, the Yankees were little brother to the Giants, never finishing better than third place in the American League. Then they got Babe Ruth. The Giants were owned by businessman Charles Stoneham, but they were run by John McGraw, team vice president and a former player manager. He grew jealous of the Yankees when they outdrew the Giants for the first time in 1920, 1.3 million fans to 930,000. Everyone wanted to come out and see the marvel that was Babe Ruth. By 1921, the Yankees were the best team in the American League and would end up facing the Giants in the World Series every year from 1921 to 1923. A quick side note, I'm a little confused by McGraw because he's also listed as an owner of the Yankees from 1901 to 1902 when the franchise was still in Baltimore. McGraw was a player, but I'm wondering if player managers were just given ownership stake at the time or if that's just like a clerical error that is made on some baseball history. Anyway, the Giants evicted the Yankees following the 1921 season, forcing their owner, Jacob Rupert, to build a field of his own. The Giants had a pretty good setup with the Yankees at the time. They charged them 10 cents for every fan that attended a Yankees game. In 1920, that cost the Yankees about $129,000, no small fee at the time. I couldn't find an exact ticket price for that era, but I found different sources that said a bleacher ticket might cost 5 or 10 cents, grandstand seats would be like 50 cents, and then the best seats up to a dollar. Another thing to note, many games would have only three or 4,000 fans in the stands. It would be very intimate. Remember, every game was in the afternoon, so you can imagine how many people would show up to a 2 p.m. game on a Tuesday in 1920, and forget about it if the weather wasn't great. If the baseball reference attendance logs are correct, you can see a real trend in the Yankees' 1920 season. Their home opener drew 25,000 fans. The average weekend game throughout the season would get maybe 15 or 20,000 and sometimes upward of 38,000, which was, I think, a sellout for the polo grounds. But by July, every game, even the weekday games that would ordinarily draw just a few thousand people, now drew 20,000 plus fans. Babe Ruth and the live ball era had arrived in New York. So after receiving his eviction notice, Rupert started looking for land to build a new field for his team. Locations had been scouted in the 19-teens, but the team was never too serious about moving at that point. In 1921, they obviously had to. A spot on Long Island was evaluated, and two seriously considered in Manhattan. One of them was at Amsterdam Avenue between 136th and 138th Streets, and the other one was on the west side near 32nd Street. Rupert ended up settling on a 10-acre plot of land in the Bronx between 157th and 161st Street at River Avenue not so coincidentally, directly across the Harlem River from the Polo Grounds. The location was actually predicted to be a disaster. Critics said it was too far from the city center and more easily accessible by car than it was subway. The Yankees were already considered to be a rich man's team, so this just fit the narrative. McGraw predicted they are going up to Goatville, and before long they will be lost sight of. A New York team should be based on Manhattan Island. Old Takes Exposed would have a field day with that quote. Yankee Ballpark, as it was originally dubbed, would not be ready until 1923, so the Yankees rented the polo grounds for another season. Rupert's budget was $2.5 million, 
and the job went to White Construction Company, who broke ground on May 5, 1922. Yankee Stadium, as it would be called by opening day 1923, took 284 days to build. 2,300 tons of steel, a million brass screws, 20,000 cubic yards of concrete, and a million feet of lumber were used. The opening was highly anticipated. The sheer size of Yankee Stadium was awe-inspiring. It was twice the size of any existing ballpark. It was also the first field to be called a stadium. In those days, teams played in a field or a yard or grounds. Stadium was audacious. Stadium was bold, perfect for who it was built for. The nickname, The House That Ruth Built, was coined by Fred Lieb of the New York Evening Telegram upon its opening. Not only because the dimensions of the field were seemingly made for or made by Ruth, but because he was the turning point in the Yankees franchise that allowed Rupert to move out of the polo grounds and into baseball's new cathedral. I found this aspect interesting. I assumed the stadium was called the house that Ruth built in hindsight. Seeing as how he was the best player of the era, I figured that was something people came up with later. But it was called that in real time. Even on opening day, the babe was presented with a case containing a symbolically big bat. The whole reason Rupert built a mammoth stadium was so people could come and watch Babe. He was, as his Hall of Fame plaque says, the greatest drawing card in the history of baseball. The original dimensions were insane. They didn't really make any sense. Largely, though, because it was built for a multi-purpose facility. We'll get to that in a minute. The exact dimensions differed depending on the source, but it was 258 feet right down the lines and 490 feet to the deepest part of center field where the flagpole stood. The key difference between left and right field, as you know, is that left field jut out much more dramatically than right field did, making it a much better left-handed hitter's park. The Babe said, though, that the Polo Grounds was actually a better hitter's park for him. Initially, his home run rate dropped when they moved into Yankee Stadium, although in 1927 he set the single-season record, breaking his own record with 60 home runs. He later said he would have hit 80 home runs in a full season at the Polo Grounds in 1927. Everything else about the stadium was good to Babe. He led the league in virtually every important offensive category at the time. It was also very good to Yankees pitchers. Their staff led the American League in ERA, strikeouts, complete games, and hits allowed in its inaugural season, which ended with a championship over their rival Giants. April 18, 1923 marked the birth of the most famous venue in American sports. Over the next 85 years, it would host 38 World Series, 4 All-Star Games, professional and college football games, boxing matches, religious gatherings, conventions, and hundreds of historic baseball moments. Until 1936, the stadium was pretty different from what you probably picture when someone says original Yankee Stadium. When it opened, the top two decks went only as far as the foul poles. The left field lower level extended around the corner, but right field did not. The outfield fence had sharp angles. The best way I can describe it is it looked kind of like the roof of a house if it was leaning to the left. It was also a misshaping quarter-mile running track that ran around the field and a slight upslope from that track to the outfield fence, which was used for bicycle races. A year after it opened, home plate was moved up 13 feet to eliminate a crevice in the right field corner that created weird bounces. This was referred to as the bloody angle. This thing made Fenway Park's pesky pole look normal. There's a newspaper article from February 8, 1924, titled Longer Right Field at Yankee Stadium, A Blow to Babe Ruth, which argues the distance down the right field line moving from 258 feet to 294 feet and 6 inches, mind you, will hurt Ruth's home run total. 
This thing from the beginning was designed with Babe in mind to hit pop fly homers right down the right field line that would land in this part of the stands. In reality, it was a very small area that extended out into the field of play, and Ruth never actually hit a home run into the bloody angle. His home run practice, as the article put it, would be just fine. While this move extended the left and right field corners, it slightly reduced the overall outfield distances and created the signature deep backstop, which measured 80 feet. Another added benefit to this infield shift were the shadows, which were pretty harsh on the original design in the spring and fall. In 1928, the top two decks were extended around the left field corner, and a few rows of field-level seats were removed to accommodate foul territory. In the mid-30s, the original wooden bleachers were replaced with permanent metal ones, and the outfield fence was reconfigured into a sweeping curve shape. This reduced the distances to a still ridiculous 301 feet down the left field line, 402 feet to straightaway left, 457 to Death Valley left center, 461 feet to center, 407 feet to right center, 344 feet to straightaway right, and 296 to the right field pole. In 1937, all three decks were extended around the right field corner, completing the classic grandstand shape. I think there's an obsession with the original design and layout because it changed so much. Every couple of years, they made tweaks to the field, the fences, and the stands. If you find a dateless old picture of Yankee Stadium, there are some clues you can use to figure out when it was taken based on the fence configuration, if lights were installed, what the scoreboard looks like, the color of the freeze, the color of the stands, and more. The flagpole was always in play, but in 1932, the first monument was installed for Miller Huggins. Lou Gehrig's monument joined in 1941, and Babe Ruth's in 1949. In the 40s and 50s, the team was winning pretty much every year, and unbelievable moments occurred, but the specs of the stadium didn't really change. They had grand plans for after World War II ended. In 1945, it was announced that they planned to add a second deck to the bleachers and additional box seats at field level, expanding capacity to over 100,000. Thankfully, I think, this never happened. The biggest development was the installation of lights. On May 28, 1946, the first ever night game was played. The Yanks lost to the Senators 2-1 in front of 48,917 fans. During these years, it did change owners, though. Rupert financed and owned the stadium from the start, and it was a package deal with the team. In 1945, a trio of businessmen, Dan Topping, Del Webb, and Larry McPhail, bought the team from the Rupert estate. Topping and Webb remained owners until they sold it to CBS in 1964, but in 1953, they sold the stadium, along with the Blues Stadium in Kansas City, the Yankees' top farm team, to Arnold Johnson for $6.5 million. There's a lot to this Arnold Johnson Yankees connection, might end up being its own history episode, but here's what you need to know for now. Johnson had been angling his way into owning a Major League Baseball team for a while. He purchased the Yankees in Blue Stadium in 1953 with the intention of moving an existing franchise to Kansas City and using the Blue Stadium. He succeeded in doing this in 1954 by purchasing the Philadelphia Athletics and moving them the next year to KC. This created a conflict of interest though. Johnson owned the A's, but he was the landlord for the Yankees. So he sold the stadium to John W. Cox in March 1955. But in the two years that he owned it, Johnson sold the land under the stadium to the Knights of Columbus for $2 million. So as of 1955, John Cox owned the building and the Knights of Columbus owned the land. Topping and Webb owned the team. In 1962, Cox donated the stadium to his alma mater, 
Rice University. Whew, you got all that? The 1960s not only saw ownership change, but the stadium got a facelift too. After CBS purchased the team and while Rice University owned the stadium, the interior, including the seats, was painted blue, the frieze was given a fresh coat of white paint, and the concrete exterior was also painted white. In its original form, the Yankee Stadium exterior had a brownish gold hue, not too dissimilar from the current one when it opened, and the seats in the grandstands were a lighter shade of blue. The overall color scheme was not what you'd think of as Yankees colors. The new paint job made everything pop more, the contrast of the white frieze, dark blue seats, and green grass. Pictures also show the facing of the upper deck and the loge level to be painted white as well. And to top it all off for some reason, the foul poles were painted orange. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Two other notable features of the original that people obsess over are the scoreboards and the freeze. Or do you call it a facade? There's only one right answer. There were two auxiliary scoreboards on the left and right field fences, like the current stadium has. There was also a huge scoreboard in right center, and everything was manually operated. The big scoreboard was one of a kind, up until there was a replica built for the Phillies at Scheib Park. It showed out-of-town scores by the inning. They could actually do this until the league started to expand and there were too many games to show. It was called the Ballantine Scoreboard because Ballantine Beer sponsored it with a huge sign underneath. At the top center was a clock. Originally, this didn't have a sponsor. Then a larger clock was installed that looked like the face of a watch because it was sponsored by Longines Watches. The original scoreboard was replaced in 1959 and in later years there was a Yankees logo at the top instead of a clock. Here's Bob Shepard, the legendary voice of Yankee Stadium from 1951 to 2008, explaining the scoreboard and public address operations in the original stadium. In the, in the old days, I can remember when there were young high school boys behind the auxiliary scoreboard, and they had little plaques made of tin, and they would hang them up as inning after inning passed by, showing the Yankees scored two runs, they would get a tin and put two up. If the visiting teams had a zero, they would put a zero up. Uh, this was true in the left field and in the right field, the auxiliary scoreboard. Then out in the center field, there were other men, grown men, who not only put up the score, but also put up who was coming to bat and uh, uh, who the pitcher was and so on, with little tin plates with the numbers on them. There was a fellow named Ray Sanzi who sat in the press box, and he had like a walkie-talkie that would carry out to the center field 
scoreboard, the major scoreboard, and he would, uh, uh, this was a great advance, balls and strikes, and he would sit in the scoreboard and in this little walkie-talkie would say, ball one, strike one, and the men out there would be able to put up because they were so far away, they couldn't interpret the umpire's signals. Uh, uh, it was crude, but I can remember Ray Sanzi year after year after year sitting there calling every ball, every strike into his little walkie-talkie to the men out in center field. I had remembered in my early days as a high school boy when the public address announcer was somebody on the field itself with a huge megaphone, nothing electronic. And he would go behind home plate, hold the megaphone up and say, the batteries for today are, and he would announce the visiting pitcher and the visiting catcher. Then he would do the home pitcher and the home catcher. This man, again with his megaphone, would walk behind first base. Then he would walk across to third base and do the same thing. That was the beginning of public address announcing as I saw it as a young boy. Then it became electronic. And when I came here 42 years ago, the press box was over near third base between home plate and third base. It was open. There was no protection there. I had my microphone, but it was not as highly developed electronically as it is now. But I can remember the uh, electrician sitting next to me with a turntable. And when I told the crowd to rise, they would put a needle down on uh, a 78 record and a band would play the national anthem or somebody would sing the national anthem. And four or five times a year, the needle would skip from one groove to another. And the general manager of the Yankees, George Weiss, would be furious. And he would come down and say, get another record, get another record. And the electrician would be so embarrassed because the needle skipped from one groove to another. It doesn't happen today when we have outstanding electronic people handling the equipment, or we have a fabulous organist who never makes a mistake. Hearing Bob Shepard talk about the original days is pretty cool. When he started, Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle were on the team. He was the PA announcer through the 50s and 60s glory days, the 70s resurgence, the 80s dark days, and then the 90s dynasty. By 2007, his stamina to announce a full game was not there, but he still did some games, and he did announce the starting lineups for the closing of the old stadium on September 21st, 2008. He was the voice of Yankee Stadium for half a century. Now to the freeze, which was not in the original build plans, but Osborne Engineering added it when Rupert said he wanted the stadium to have an air of dignity. According to architects, this shape came out of nowhere, meaning it was original and not likely copied from anything that existed at the time. It was made from copper, which is why it developed a greenish tint over time, similar to the Statue of Liberty. It was a rumor that the original freeze was moved to the outfield in the 1970s renovations, but that one was a replica, and not a very good replica according to some architects. Most of the original was scrapped and some of it was sold as memorabilia. The same happened in 2010 when they demolished the old Yankee Stadium. 
The current freeze at the new stadium is back to its original spot, above the upper deck all around the grandstands. However, it is not an exact replica. The shape is the same, but it doesn't have the same intricate details. Another difference is that the roof doesn't hang over the seats as far as in the original stadium, which almost extended the full length of the upper deck. In other words, if it rained back in the day, you'd be dry in the upper deck with the exception of the first few rows. The freeze is perhaps the most recognizable aspect of Yankee Stadium, like the Green Monster at Fenway or the Wall Ivy at Wrigley Field. It, along with the three tiers wrapping around the field, helped set the stadium apart from other ballparks of that era. While modifications were being made over the years and the stadium was changing hands, history was being made within its walls. Rupert had other events in mind when he built the stadium. The first of many boxing matches happened in July 1923. Starting in 1946, the New York Black Yankees Negro League team played there. As legend has it, Josh Gibson hit a home run over the left field roof, which would make him the only player to ever hit a home run out of Yankee Stadium. Mickey almost did it to right field in 1963 when his home run hit the freeze. Babe Ruth's coffin was carried into the stadium for a public viewing in 1948. It also hosted Army-Notre Dame football games starting in the 20s and the Army-Navy game in 1930 and 31. The New York football giants played there from 1956 to 1973, and that included the greatest game ever played, the 1958 NFL championship game versus the Baltimore Colts. Anything and everything came through Yankee Stadium. Soccer matches, concerts, the rodeo, the circus, and a Jehovah's Witness convention, which is responsible for the stadium's largest ever crowd, 123,707 people. The largest ever baseball crowd reported was 85,265 in 1928, 20,000 over capacity. Perhaps the most emotional moment came on July 4th, 1939, when Lou Gehrig gave his farewell speech, baseball's Gettysburg Address. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? That I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. The stadium continued to hold many other events even after all the renovations in the 70s. It hosted three papal masses. 1965 was the first ever in North America, and then in 1979 and 2008. In 1990, Nelson Mandela proudly proclaimed, I am a Yankee, in front of thousands while on his freedom tour. From a baseball standpoint, no field matches its history. April 30th, 1939, Lou Gehrig plays his final game. May 15th, 1941, Joe DiMaggio started his 56-game hitting streak. October 8th, 1956, Don Larson pitched his World Series perfect game. October 1st, 1961, Roger Maris broke the Babes home run record. May 14th, 1967, Mickey hits his 500th. October 18th, 1977, Reggie hits three World Series bombs. September 4th, 1993, Jim Abbott tosses his no-hitter. October 26, 1996, the new dynasty was born. May 17, 1998, 
David Wells was perfect. A year later, on July 18, 1999, David Cohn was perfect. On November 1st, 2001, Jeter became Mr. November and Scott Brocious hit Deja Vu all over again. The Yankees won 26 World Series there. They welcomed millions and millions of fans. The greatest baseball legends ran around its bases. Some of our favorite announcers called games, from Mel Allen to Phil Rizzuto and John Sterling. Maybe you only saw one game there, or maybe you had season tickets. Anyone who's been knows the feeling when you walk through the tunnel and see the green grass for the first time. There's only one word to describe it. Chills. By the early 1970s, the original stadium was wearing. When the chunk of concrete fell from the upper deck in April 1998, the engineer who inspected the stadium famously said, Hey, it was made of stuff that predated the Great Depression. While the bones of the old stadium, the post-70s renovated stadium, predated the Great Depression, it was really gut-renovated in 1974. After the Yankees lost the 1964 World Series, they went through their worst stretch of baseball since before Babe Ruth arrived. They were run by team president Michael Burke under CBS ownership. You might remember him from the history episode on how George Steinbrenner bought the Yankees. In 1970, Mayor John Lindsay approached Burke with an offer to spend $25 million to improve Yankee Stadium. It was compared to the modern Shea Stadium, which opened in 1964, with a total construction cost of $28.5 million. They thought 25 for renovations of Yankee Stadium were more than enough. Boy, were they wrong. Stadium wasn't even 50 years old at that time, but it felt older than other old ballparks. I think it's because of the sheer size. Ballparks built in the early 1900s had one main level and then maybe a small upper deck, if at all. The structure had to support so much more weight. Think about the difference between 30,000 fans and 60,000 fans every game. That was the difference between Yankee Stadium and other ballparks of that era. In the early 70s, there was also a proposal to build an entirely new stadium on the same land, but it was abandoned. And thank God, because it was going to be one of those cookie-cutter, multi-purpose stadiums that went up all around the country in the 60s and 70s. That would have sucked. Part of the renovations included parking and roads around the stadium. Before work began, a couple of housekeeping items needed to be taken care of, though. First, they needed to get a condemnation order. Second, the city needed to acquire the building and the land, which were still owned by Rice University and the Knights of Columbus. The city got the building by eminent domain in 1971 for $2.5 million from Rice University. I couldn't find an exact sale price of the land, but I think it was about a million bucks because the city's approval of the $24 million renovation included $3.5 million for the building plus the land. Getting this approved was no small feat because at the time, New York City was really struggling financially but it was important to the city to keep the Yankees in the Bronx. Lindsay said, Nothing could be more important to the economic vitality of our city than to assure that the house that Ruth built and the New York Yankees remain here in the Bronx for future generations of New Yorkers. The renovations began following the 1973 season, and it took two years. While the stadium was being worked on, the Yankees played at Shea Stadium. When the old Yankee Stadium opened its renovated doors on April 15, 1976, the cost had exceeded $150 million, and the team had been sold to George Steinbrenner. The state was stuck footing the bill. Honestly, it was an entirely new stadium after the renovations. The shell of the stadium remained, but that's about it. All of the support beams, 118 in total, were removed, as well as the stadium's roof and freeze, an architectural oversight, as one article put it. The upper deck was extended nine rows up, and a new shorter roof was installed with lights going all the way around the length of the grandstands. 
A new upper concourse was also built and escalators and ramps were installed for easier access. The middle level was rebuilt as well to include 16 luxury boxes. The center field bleachers were painted black for the batter's eye. At the original stadium, these seats were filled in on night games, but blacked out for day games, except for Larson's perfect game in the World Series, if you remember that from the Subway Series episode. All of the grandstand and field seats were replaced with plastic ones, reducing overall capacity to 57,545. A taller back wall behind the bleachers was built with a replica frieze along the top. Because it was so much higher, it blocked the view from the subway, except for a narrow corridor in right field. They also put in the first instant replay telescreen in baseball on the back wall. All of that is fine. I'm okay with modernizing. The thing that bothered me the most is that the playing field was lowered 7 feet and moved out slightly. This means it wasn't the same base pass that Garrick and Ruth and Mantle ran around. And it wasn't the same mound that Larson pitched his perfect game on. Yes, it's still the same land, but it wasn't the same field. I also found this oddity in a New York Times article. The original field sloped from the infield to the outfield. They planned for the new one to tilt from the outfield to the infield. Uh, why not just make it flat? The dimensions drastically changed. The left and right field corners were pushed out, and the power alleys in center field were brought in significantly. When it reopened, it was 312 feet to the left field pole, 387 feet to straightaway left, 430 feet to Death Valley, 417 feet to center, 385 to right center, 353 to right field, and 310 down the right field line. Over the years, these distances were modified, changing in 1985, and then for a final time in 88, settling on the numbers we all remember, 408 to center, 399 to Death Valley, and 314 to the short porch. The monuments and the flagpole was moved from in play to the area in between the left center field bleachers and the wall. This included the bullpens and an expanded monument park, which I think is the best part of the renovated stadium. The facelift and the team being competitive again helped bring people back to Yankee Stadium. The renovated stadium got even louder than the original because it was even more of a bowl than before. In the first few years after the renovations, Steinbrenner wanted to make it a livelier atmosphere. He wanted to make the experience memorable for fans in all aspects, not just baseball. The stadium had the classic organ music, but George wanted something else. They settled on Frank Sinatra's New York, New York, which came out in 1979. So starting in 1980, New York, New York was played after games. This tradition, among many others, has remained in the stadium to this day. It's also fitting that Steinbrenner's ownership coincided with the renovations. It was a completely new look for the franchise altogether. But it didn't take long before Steinbrenner started lobbying for a new stadium. In the 80s, he got the New Jersey governor to authorize land in the Meadowlands complex for a baseball stadium. The city approached Steinbrenner with numerous proposals to revamp the stadium yet again and keep the Yankees in the Bronx, but he rejected all of them. In the 90s, he actually finally had a case. Like in the early 70s, the stadium was growing old. I mentioned the concrete that fell in April 1998, but the team was also insanely popular and in the middle of their dynasty, Steinbrenner wanted to take advantage of the luxury boxes and other in-stadium revenue opportunities that the current stadium was not offering. He threatened to move the team to New Jersey again. Westside Stadium, at the current location of Hudson Yards, also near where Rupert originally looked to build a stadium, was approved. This would be a multi-purpose facility for baseball, football, and a future Olympics bid. But eventually, the location across the street in the Bronx was settled on, and the groundbreaking ceremony took place on August 16, 2006. 
Over the next two seasons, the Yankees set franchise attendance records of about 4.3 million fans. Everyone wanted to come to a game in the Bronx and see the old stadium one last time. As the new stadium neared completion, you started to see cynical articles written, and in my opinion, some of them were justified. What's the biggest difference between the old and the new stadium? This line in an article by Jim Dwyer sums it up. The new stadium in the Bronx is a building with a steakhouse, a museum, more private suites and fewer ordinary seats than the old stadium, protected by moats of garages and privilege. It was one of the most expensive stadiums, not just baseball, but all stadiums ever built. $2.3 billion. I know you can't compare, but I find it ironic that the original was built for $2.5 million and the new one was almost the same except with a B. About half of that cost was publicly subsidized and this raised some eyebrows because City Field, built the exact same year, cost only $900 million. While it was largely funded by the Yankees, issues arose because the city had to spend over $300 million in taxpayer money to support the stadium with new sewers and roads. There was also the $39 million for a new Metro North train station and $27 million to tear down the old stadium. I don't want to go too deep into the politics of it, but the Yankees were heavily criticized for the exorbitant cost of their new digs. I mean, nothing was left out. It has all the modern amenities of a great new ballpark. Open air concourse, massive great hall, good sight lines, luxury boxes, more luxury boxes, even more luxury boxes, suites, restaurants, museums, and more. Aesthetically, I don't think there's any denying that the stadium is beautiful. The Indiana limestone exterior is reminiscent of the original stadium and is my favorite part. The three-tiered grandstand design was kept in the field dimensions. At least the numbers on the walls are the same. The backstop behind home plate was moved up about 20 feet, however. Monument Park was moved to center field and the bullpens to left and right center. They brought back the old auxiliary scoreboards and added one of the largest video boards in the sports world to center field. The new capacity with standing room is 52,325. I took that number from Yankees.com, but some other sources say something slightly lower. For fans, most things were pretty familiar. They were just new. The biggest change came for players and the staff. The clubhouse is massive. They have indoor facilities that didn't exist in the old stadium, and the management offices are extensive. The new ballpark officially opened on April 2nd, 2009 with a workout day. The first game was an exhibition versus the Cubs on April 3rd, and opening day of the 2009 season was April 16th versus the Indians. Like the original and the old, the new stadium hosts many events other than baseball. NYCFC plays their soccer games at Yankee Stadium, and college football and outdoor NHL games have taken place. There have been concerts and various athletic events like public 5K races. And just like in 1923, the Yankees christened the new place with the championship, and they almost did that in 1976 as well. The most accurate description of the new place that I came across is, the original gave birth to a genetically engineered child. That made me laugh and wince at the same time. I equate it to like if you rent a really expensive Airbnb. Everything looks pristine. Then you arrive and you turn on the shower and the water pressure is low where you sleep in the bed and the sheets are kind of rough. The dishwasher might not work and the pool is cold. Everything looks amazing, but something's not right. I don't want to be the guy that just crushes the new and always prefers the old. I'm really not that in many aspects of baseball. And the stadium has improved a ton over the past decade. They've added better food options. I mean, the original was just filled with shitty chains like Papa John's, which was insane. They've created gathering areas 
They finally got rid of the obstructed view bleacher seats in deep left and right center. Honestly, whoever built that should have been fired. I hate that the legend seats are separated from the rest of the stadium, and a lot of times on TV it makes the place look empty. But on the other hand, I think the 200 level, which is the second level, created thousands of great seats with an amazing view that didn't exist in the old stadium. I also really love the open air concourse. If you go to one or two games a year, maybe you spend all nine innings in your seat. But over the past few years with the Bronx Pinstripes events and and living close to the stadium, I, I get to the ballpark a lot. And when you're there more often and you want to talk to people, it's nice to be able to stand up in the concourse, see the game, see what's going on, but not have to be in your seat the entire time. For a playoff game, obviously, that's not the case. And speaking of the playoffs, the place still gets loud. I never attended a playoff game at the old stadium, so I can't compare exactly, but the new place gets loud, and in October, it's a hell of a lot of fun. One thing that has remained constant from the original to the old and now to the new is that when a team comes to play in the Bronx, they're playing the Yankees and the stadium, the ghosts as Jeter called them. Yankee Stadium is still the most famous venue in baseball. It's hallowed because the team has almost always been good and filled with legends, but there's something about the structure, the shape, the imposing coliseum-like facing that makes it special. If you've been to all three iterations of Yankee Stadium, then I envy you. I really enjoy going to old stadiums as a fan. I love Fenway Park and I love Wrigley Field. I'm a baseball nerd, so I get a kick out of that kind of history stuff. But I know Red Sox fans who complain about Fenway because the seats are tiny, sight lines are off, and the concourse is small. And it's definitely not practical to have a modern game played in ancient facilities. I mean, Aaron Judge can barely stand up straight in the Fenway dugout. The Yankees tried to bring the history of the old place to the new. Overall, I think they achieved that. Is it perfect? No. But hey, at least we don't call the trop home. Thanks for listening. is in the air at Littleton Coin Company and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.